Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we are talking about prey. It's eat, pray, love. It's prey all day. It's all the prey you want to play. Rob, how much do you love prey? I love prey so much, and not just because <laughs> I think it's letting me recapture my lost youth of 90s immersion uh, shooters, <sighs> yes. uh, but also because just like I am kind of digging every single thing that that, that Prey is doing. Um, <sighs> it's, look, can we just talk about how much I just goddamn love doomed space stations? Yes. Like, yes, we can. You give me a space setting that's controlled by some sort of amoral, vaguely incompetent, shitty corporation <laughs> and combine with like, Incre- the incredible hubris of man. And then you release an alien or a cyborg or an alien cyborg up in that place. And baby, you got a stew going. That is me oh. and Prey right now. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, how how many hours in-ish are you, do you think? Uh, so only about like 10 or 12. Um, sure, sure. I have had to cut off a little bit for the uh, the Paradox Con, uh, which which I'm going to this weekend. Oh yes. But, um, so I definitely I definitely want to be playing a, a little a little bit more of it than <laughs> than I am, and it, it kills me <laughs> that I don't take this break. Uh, but the other thing is this: I find this a very hard game to make progress in, not because it's necessarily a a difficult game. I'm actually getting on with it pretty well. It's more that it's an incredibly dense game. Like, yes. I, had this, I had a session the other day where I played for like an hour. Uh, maybe even more than an hour. And then I took stock of what I'd done. I had basically not left the same set of like two or three rooms that I'd started my <laughs> session in. Like, I was basically yeah. going through this one area with like a fine-tooth comb and doing every single possible thing in it. And that consumed an entire play session. But when I when I sort of just looked around, I could encompass every single space that I'd, I'd visited in my in, in my session with like one sweep of the mouse. Like it was just literally like turn in a circle. That was your entire session. God, yeah, I'm having the same issue. I am thirty plus hours in at this point, which most people are saying this is like you know a twenty hour game, maybe a little more than that if you want to kind of do a lot of stuff. But no. Oh no! <laughs> Not the I way we're am doing like every single side quest, basically, and there. They, I, I'll say the reasoning why in, in a second, but I cannot. I cannot fathom not trying to do everything and see everything in this game. And that speaks to that density. There is just so much going on. There are so many sort of side stories and sort of mini plots going on. You know, there is a uh, sabotage storyline. There is a. Uh, whistleblower storyline about all the fucked up things that are going on. And it's like, oh my god, somebody kind of grew a conscience and was like, oh no, we need to get the we need to get this story out. The people of Earth need to know what's going on in this fucked up space station. There are romances. There are D and D campaigns. I hope I'm not spoiling too much, but there is just so much to look for and so much detail, and it's so rich and it's so interesting. And of course, the reason why I want to play all of these stories and I want to sort of engage with how dense this game is is because it's written really really well like these people who are on the space station all the all the sort of emails and audio logs and whatever else that i always enjoy that part you know in a bioshock or a dishonored uh, the other wonderful immersive sims that i i love 
uh, I always like that stuff a lot, and I think it's really fun. But this is kind of the first game where I actually really feel for these characters as people. I really care about them. I'm genuinely, like, if I can't help someone, I feel bad about it. I feel bad about things that my character may have done in the past. I'm like, that wasn't me. You know, I I didn't make that decision. I, you know, I want to help people. I want them to be happy. And anytime there's like an opportunity to help someone or do something good in this universe, I really want to do it because I care about these people. The level of writing is just, it's just, it's much more subtle and it's much more human, I think, than, than you even typically get in this type of game. And I am someone who loves this type of game. So that's really kind of saying something. Yeah, it really does remind me of like System Shock 2, perhaps more than anything else. More so even than than Bioshock, I think, just because the settings are are so similar and some of the characters you run into uh, are are somewhat similar. But I think maybe the difference, and and Austin talked a little bit about this on 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 the pod we had earlier earlier (laughs) in the week uh, about, about Prey. A lot of these games tend to feature really grandiose characters. And I would say System Shock 2 did as well, or at least if they were normal people, they stopped being normal really quickly after being infected by like the alien mind parasite, the, <laughs> the annelid worms. Like you got you got a dude like um oh god, this character uh Karenchkin in uh in, in System Shock 2, who's just like your typical company he's your typical company man. He's a senior executive, and he's just like yeah, just a just a greedy corporate exec. And then this monster gets a hold of him and instantly he develops this like messianic sense of purpose. Um and you can hear it sort of taking over his 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 mind. Uh which which was a cool touch, but it also meant that System Shock 2 was a was a was a game full of people uh who were sort of cranked all the way up to 11. And the thing I I I have ended up kind of admiring about Prey actually is that these do feel toned down to a more human scale, which which I really like. And and I think a, a moment for me where that really hit home was there's this there's this sequence where you end up sort of breaking into the um the psychologist's office in yeah. in, in, in the Talos One space station. And you can listen just listen to a bunch of sessions. And I think what impressed me is that, by and large, the sessions were really mundane. They were really convincing. It was, it was people dealing with the fallout of the end of a relationship aboard this, you know, this this closed yeah. circuit society. Uh, it was somebody dealing with uh, sort of the the anger and uh, sort of survivor's guilt they, they carry from having uh, survived some disasters back on Earth. And so none of it's freighted with this. What you often see in a lot of games like this, where every single exchange has to somehow directly relate to the impending disaster. Yeah. And what I liked about that therapist's office is just you're listening to these recordings and you realize that a lot of these people were just doing a long distance job and trying to sort through their shit. And that's something yep. that you can really identify with. It's very alien in a way, like the first alien where, you know, the first kind of hour of that movie is just these guys, these people are kind of working stiffs. They live in a, you know, corporate dystopian hellscape and uh, they're just they're just trying to do their goddamn jobs. Right. They're just they're just there. It's like the first episode of The Expanse, even and maybe that's even a closer sort of uh, analog here. 
And I and I love that so much. And and like what's wonderful about this is if you if you kind of go through enough of the audio logs and emails and things, you just you get such a sense of like who hates who, who has a crush on who, who likes who, who's flirting with who. You know, the whole the whole like this is basically a workplace, right? And they're all just trying to get by and get their paychecks. And they're, of course, working for a horrible, horrible corporation, as you know, as I as think a do. lot of people, as as most people can relate to, perhaps. And it's and it just feels so real and so good, and it's so wonderful for me to play a game where I can jump all over the place, I can hack, I can do ridiculous immersive sim shit, I can I can you know hack turrets to fight crazy aliens, and I can do all this stuff. And I also really care about these little stories. Like, this really is actually kind of the best of, of both of those worlds that I really enjoy. Uh, you know, the whole immersive sims are probably, yeah, I, I think I said of this on, on one of the other podcasts, it's probably the only AAA genre that I'm, like, in love with. Like, oh, an immersive sim is coming out. I'm going to play it, even if it's not maybe thematically as interesting to me as this particular game is. But, you know. I'm going to play anything that that lets you do stealth and hacking and also shooting and also, you know, any other way of sort of going through a a given encounter. That that sort of mix is so satisfying to me. Now, of course, there is like a 3D platformer every five years in the Mario team, but, you know, that's whatever. Neither here nor there. Yeah. Well, and this, <laughs> um, this is definitely a genre that I feel is sort of clinging on to AAA status by its fingernails. Oh, um, for sure. You know, there, there, there's... The, you know, there were reports emerging, uh, you know, late in the week about basically how, like, it, it might be that Dishonored uh, might be done as a series oh, with Bethesda. Uh, it certainly yeah. looks like Deus Ex is likely uh, not going to be happening, uh, at least in the near future. Over so at, exciting. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is an endangered species. And the scary thing, we'll probably talk about this uh you know, maybe more next week, is the kind of feels like a lot of the games I really love are becoming endangered species. Oh, Hitman's gone uh, too. Hitman's oh, on the block. God, I know. Io is. So upsetting. Right. So, I mean, like, I'm kind of... I think the other thing that is is really causing me to relish this experience is I know that there probably aren't... There may not be that many more preys uh, coming, at least with this kind of budget uh, behind yeah. them. And so I'm just kind of drinking deeply... Of of that good <laughs> '90s renaissance, uh, before you know it's all either big indies or you know small or um or or, or triple A shooters. Sports yeah, games. it's it's like I don't have enough fart noises in the world for for that. You know, not for what you're saying. I th- I think you're right. I I just I don't have enough fart noises for that sentiment. <laughs> yeah, like I. I love that this game is so interesting and is doing so many things and is, oh, God, I really don't want it to be the last one of these. But even if it is, this is a, I guess this is going out with a, the best bang that there is. And I know there's a lot of mixed feeling about the game. And I, and I do appreciate uh, fully how much this is, like, my game. Like, I, I have never been this catered to, like, ever in my life in a tri- in a AAA game. Like, of course, there are indies that cater to me. Don't get me wrong. There are indies with my fucking name on them. But this is, like, the first time a big-budget game has had, count them, 
for space lesbians <laughs> with like an actual like I don't I don't want to spoil anything but like I'll just say like a really cool romance that maybe happens maybe more than one of those maybe there are things in this that let me be a cool powerful space lesbian and it's the most awesome thing in the universe so yeah it's it's a weird and interesting thing to be catered to I as as not a heterosexual guy like <laughs> it's really weird and interesting and uh it's yeah, it's special. I think Prey is very, very special. I have I have encountered some bugs, but nothing that's kept me from enjoying myself, uh, you know, way too much, and nothing that's going to keep me, I hope, uh, from playing, like, 40 hours through a first playthrough. And because that's we where we're heading. <laughs> I think we might luck out with our leisurely pace of play. Uh, True. Hope, like, Patches. the game will hopefully be patched <laughs> before some of those really uh, dire bugs that, you know, Dan Stapleton over at IGN... Uh, ran into where basically yeah. his playthrough was was torched by a bug and they had to like give sucks. him a rescue save. Yeah, uh, that ain't good. And you know, I heard that from from other people as well. Um, you know, Justin Cavern from Groping the Elephant appeared to to have a broken quest that left him in a really uh, no win situation. So yeah, there there are those issues. Um, but my playthrough's been pretty rock solid, uh, and and hopefully yeah. those mid to late game issues uh, get solved before we before we hit them. Before I am curious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I to me it looks like the game just does the thing where your character, as written, is intentionally um, could be either gender. Yes. So does it feel like this, like if, if you go the, uh, you know, female Morgan route, mm-hmm. does it feel like then it becomes sort of tailored and that, okay, this is a story about uh, girl Morgan and it's a lesbian <laughs> romance, or is it just because the, the pronouns and, and genders flipped, it becomes a lesbian story? Basically, I'm asking, like, did they, in, <laughs> did they <laughs> spice it up with, with, with lesbian Morgan? Uh, for, for you, or is it just it's it's the same it's the same playthrough I'm having as Dude Morgan, uh, just gender swapped. Honestly, I I haven't uh, seen enough of Dude Morgan to say if there are major differences. I'll, I will just say it makes a huge difference to me playing mm-hmm. that way. Like saying like, oh yes, like I uh, I'm making decisions in a particular way because I feel like completely like I'm role playing. Like I am in this. I am a hundred percent like this is me. And this is what I would do <laughs> even more so than, you know, in most games, I definitely play like heroically or, you know, whatever. Um, and even when I can play as a, as a lady character, typically I'm, you know, there's still some distance there. But this is, hey, look, this is the first time I can play as like canonically like queer lady Morgan who's, you know, has a girlfriend or an ex-girlfriend or whatever and can make decisions about that and can actually like influence the way that's going to go. So it makes a big difference to me, even if even if they honestly just swapped a few things. Yeah, no, I I, I totally get that. I have yeah. a question for you about the enemy design. Yes. <laughs> you know, like I saw some complaints that the enemy design is really generic and boring, and I was sort of in my honeymoon period where I was like, "What are you talking about? The mimic's amazing! What a crazy like idea!" And the mimic <laughs> is a really good idea, uh, but. I can't tell any of the enemy types apart. It's yeah. like, I know what a mimic looks like, and then there's the big, like, shadowy dudes. Except there's, like, four different big shadowy dudes that, like, have different powers. And so yeah. I'm kind of torn on it. Like, 
I don't well, find you, them You'll probably encounter a few other things as well, but that is definitely true of the big shadowy dudes. There are just kind of a few big shadowy dudes, and they behave the same way, Yeah. even though, oh, one might be fiery and one is electrical and one is psi powers or whatever it's called. They, yeah. I'm not, I have not been in love with the combat in this game the, kind of the whole time. And I, I was originally like a little down on it, even feeling like, man, you're, you just, you suck and just eat shit for the first like four hours of the game, <laughs> which really annoyed me after, you know, playing the demo and feeling pretty powerful in the demo because you get a shotgun right away. I've come to really like the combat, but not, not love the combat, if that makes sense. I, I pretty much love every aspect of this game but the combat. And the combat is a thing that I enjoy to an extent. But I do think that the, the sort of... I don't know. I have a couple of issues with it. First, I really wanted to go further stealth than is really possible in this game. There's just sort of a tiny stealth tree and it's, it's fine. But this isn't really a stealth game. And that's okay and that's a decision that they made. But... Feels like they kind of ha- they went a little halfway with it. Like you can do stealth if you want. It's not great, but you can do it if you want. And it's like, oh, okay, you put it in. So I feel like it's viable, but it's not really viable. Uh, so I'm a little eh on that. But for the most part, <sighs> once you get to a particular enemy type that uses other things in the environment, I'll say that gets very interesting and frustrating. But Definitely interesting. You do have to switch things up quite a bit when you encounter those, for sure. I don't know. How are you finding it? Is it kind of annoying you? Is it kind of getting in your way more than it's enjoyable? Or no, or, I, are you kind of like? Eh. I think it's. I think it is neutral. Um, okay. I think for me in those early hours, it definitely was a stealth game, actually. Uh, but now that I've gotten out of those opening areas and I'm a little less weak, there's yeah. not a ton of incentive to stay stealthy especially because in a lot of places you're right like you kind of are gonna have to murder that thing at some point like <laughs> yeah but but i think that's what it is like the the stealth is just there to set up whether or not you're gonna have a fight or whether you're going to murder an alien and yeah. by and large i am murdering aliens <laughs> like uh it, <laughs> yep. it's totally the uh you th- you think i'm trapped on the space station with you uh kind of situation <laughs> sure uh the thing that I find really enjoyable about it is that there are so many different ways you can approach the combat. Like you can basically, it feels like there's, there's three routes uh, that that you can go uh, maybe four. You can basically like reshape the battlefield. If you go full tech, you know what I mean? Like you can be carrying turrets around and sort of like setting things up so that no matter where you are, like, fighting uh you know you've chosen your you've chosen your battlefield you've shaped it <laughs> you're ready to go uh yeah. which is which is pretty cool and that you know with the glue gun especially you can actually start like reshaping entrances to rooms yes. um cause the aliens don't seem to be aware of how easily you can bust those walls down um, there's actually a lot of platforming in this game if you get good with the glue gun for sure oh man oh i think we just discovered <laughs> the uh the, that, that secret sauce for danielle Mm-hmm, yep. <laughs> that's that's what they were catering to. Is like have, yep, have a glue you. gun. It's a pat. It's my game. <laughs> um, the thing I haven't gotten into too much is the side tree, and by too much I mean at all, because okay, there's two things. One is the game makes pretty clear that something is off about the neuromods, yep. and. <laughs> 
I've just got all sorts of unreliable narrator heebie-jeebies uh, around <laughs> yeah. every decision in this game. But it just sort of seems that any sort of combat abilities that seem kind of alien in nature would be just the kind of thing that boomerangs on me hard uh, in the end game. Yeah. The other thing, more immediately, is that the moment you start using those jacked up powers, the security systems aboard the station turn against you. Yep. And I don't know if I want to deal with that, Danielle. Like I, I didn't. Just can't. I'm playing all human. I'm I like deli- I made the choice like around 12 hours in or whatever. You know, you're kind of uh, faced with some of those decisions. I was like, nope, not doing it. I'm going human only. And I was a little worried at first because I was like, oh god, this is going to be really hard. But because I'm playing so deliberately and finding so many other things to help me, I'm doing okay. But it was like a weighty decision at the time. I was like, nope, not. No aliens for Danielle. Not not today. Not this playthrough. God, what if I play through this game again for 40 hours? I am worse than... Oh, I was going to say I'm worse than my girlfriend who just spent 140 hours on Persona. But but that's, but that's what Persona takes. I know. Like, us going back... And I think, <laughs> it's true. Like, I am looking forward to going back through this game and going full, like, psionic death commando. Yes! Like, I probably will, too. But I don't know if I will. But here's the, here's the, here's the problem with that, though. Uh, I like seeing everything. Like yeah. my, like early in the game, my like uh, prime directive was making sure I could open as many different doors as possible. <laughs> I do not like things being kept from me uh, in these games. I want to read every email. If there is a terminal on on, on the space station, I am yep. going to hack into it and read all that gossip. Uh, if there is a closet full of goodies and maybe an audio log, I will move heaven and earth to get inside that damn closet. And so I'm like, early on, I was like, yeah, these guys are really tough, but screw it. I'm getting, I'm going to upgrade my hacking ability. I got to open those yep. doors. Uh, I got to get that extra leverage so I can move the, move the barricades uh, and get into <sighs> stuff that way. And so that's kind of where I'm at is that, if I'm going to go that full combat direction, it feels like it's actually taking me away from the stuff I want to be doing. Yeah, I can see that. And I'm also, because I'm doing the same thing you are in regards to, oh, I have to see every single email. I have to see every art asset. I have to see every little doodad that's not nailed to the to the walls. I might not need to play it again because I would have seen, like, almost literally everything <laughs> that's in the game. Need uh, is a so funny it's like, word there, though. You know, I don't know about need. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll but see I will want, goes. I think. Yeah, I probably will want to, because I kind of love this game that much. And it's been, you know, as much as I I loved The Witcher 3. I loved Soma. I loved Anodyne. I truly loved Gone Home. But, like, games that really get so deep inside my brain, and to the point where... I was running the other day. I didn't tell this story, I don't think. I was running the other day, running to work, and I live in a pretty industrial part of Brooklyn, or run through a very industrial part to, uh, you know, to get to work. And I, I have been playing this game. It is on my brain. It is in my brain. I am in love with it. I think about it when I'm not playing it. I have had prey dreams. I am so into this that running through this industrial area, seeing things that looked like, you know, like carts of stuff and, you know, be, you know, things that actually look like, oh, yeah, there's there's totally a neuromod in there. If I could just move that giant thing around a little bit, like in my physical life, thinking about that. That's how I know it's like, 
this isn't just a passing phase. This is this, this is, is the real love. This is true love, and it is beautiful. And I haven't. I feel like I haven't experienced this in years. Like, well, no, that's not true. I experienced this with Zelda last month. <laughs> so it's it's been like twice in a couple of months, and it has it has been like years again. This is with the caveat. I have loved things, but being in love with something is like an extra step. You know, it's when it's when you inject it into your eye as opposed to just kind of take a bath in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> ah, what a beautiful metaphor. Um, yep. So I think uh, I think we're both obviously going to keep playing oh, yeah. Prey. We'll have more uh, to talk so about next week. We'll have plenty more to talk about next week. So why don't we go into our weekend correspondence? Why don't we read some of these lovely letters that have come in from cool people. Oh, so man. our it first is letter. It's a fraught mailbag this week, let me tell you. <sighs> oh, I'm seeing this. Oh boy. We've got we've got some letters. Do we ever? Alright. Well, I'm gonna read that first one right here. Uh, this comes from Corey. Corey writes. <clears throat> Over the last uh, couple of months, I've replayed Drink 'em if you got 'em, which are three. I completed the game on PC when it was first released, but never played the expansions. Recently, I saw the game on PS4 bundled with Hearts of Stone and Blood and Wine and decided to give it another spin, this time on the couch. Though it hasn't been all that long since my first time through, enough life has passed me by uh, that a lot of the fine details had slipped from my memory. Thus, I found myself engaging in something of a meta-analysis as I played, comparing my present experience to my memory of the original experience. The game is largely excellent, no surprise, but this way of playing caused the highs and lows to pop into stark relief. And here's my strongest opinion about the game, uh, one a second playthrough completely reinforced. Bloody Baron is a garbage person and does not <laughs> deserve an ounce of your sympathy or pity, and I will fight you on this. He sure can make a sad face and whine about how Geralt is in no position to judge him, never having had a wife or family, and okay, it all started understandably enough with the Baron prioritizing work over family, but then he'd, gone, he'd been gone for years and came home to find out his wife had taken up with another man in his absence, he murdered the guy and dragged his wife home against her will. And for the next decade, he regularly slipped into drunken rages and beat her. I will never understand how this game, which rightfully garnered praise for dramatically improving upon its predecessor's portrayal of women, didn't get torched for pulling out all the stops to make us uh, try to shed a tear for the bloody baron. Seems to me like the worst kind of uh, misprioritization, asking us to sympathize with the victimizer as much or more than his victims. Garbage person. If y'all returned to any personal favorite media recently and discovered, if not an entirely new perspective, any deepened feelings or texture of experience. Thanks for the show, and stay spicy, Corey. Well, Corey, I won't disagree whatsoever that the Bloody Baron is a garbage person. I think you are right. He is a garbage person. That's how my Geralt certainly uh, dealt with him. It was, it was fuck you all the way. But I, you're right. Like, it's... I don't think it's it's super cool to have that, you know, okay, like, you're an abuser, shut up. Like, <laughs> that perspective of, like, well, there's reasons. It's like, no, there's no reason to abuse your spouse. That's you, There are no reasons to uh. abuse a person. You know, it's, like, I get it, and I get what they were maybe trying to do, but I am, I'm also very sympathetic to this that says, like, you know what? If you are shitty, you did a shitty thing. doesn't mean that all things are, you know, that there is absolute... It doesn't mean that there are absolutes, I guess is what I should say. But it does mean that you don't need to spend a lot of time feeling bad for somebody who is, like, 
a legitimate abuser, right? I don't know. Do you have a, a, a different take on this? I, I felt I look bullish on this myself as, as time has gone by, for sure. That is a quest that I came in fully prepared to hate, and early sure. on, Mike Geralt did treat that guy like an utter piece of shit. Yeah. But... I don't know. It's an enormously complicated thing. Like, first of all, I don't think The Witcher 3 is in general blind to the victims of abuse. The other key part, the other key character in that story is his daughter, um, right. who has quite the opposite interpretation of events and uh, is in a rage uh, over, over what this guy, what this guy did to the yes. family. So like, uh, you know, she's also an important character in the story. Now, admittedly, not as important as the Bloody Baron. He's your, he's the person that Geralt talks with the absolute most uh, over the course of this adventure. But at the same time, I think what I appreciate the most is it ends up being a really nuanced portrait of someone who other games would have just been a monster. Because here's the thing. If the Bloody Baron isn't that sympathetic character, then he's just... Then it's just a boring-ass RPG quest where you run up, oh, it's this guy abusing his wife. And then Geralt kicks the shit out of him or something. And then that's the end of it. And then there's kind of this, well, what the fuck was this whole abusive, like, husband story doing doing in this game? Like, why, why was that even, even there? Yeah. What I like about the Bloody Baron is that... <laughs> It humanizes some. It puts a human face on something that is enormously easy to just write off as as being monstrous. And I think this right. is something that a lot of our media fail in general to do. Life is not this simple. If you do X, then you are Y. The problem, the the hell of you know, in some ways of sort of navigating the world, is that a lot of people are are multiple things and the bloody baron you know in the end he might be a garbage person but then there's also those parts of him that you can find sympathy with uh that you know that that you know he's the the, the tragic hero of his own story that is a self-serving narrative perhaps but i like that i like that witcher 3 at least tries to get to a place where this character is trying to figure out how he ended up becoming the monster because he is aware of it like he he knows how badly he's fucked things up and i think part of that entire quest line is just figuring out uh how you know how someone ends up late in their life realizing that they are just complete that they have just turned into a complete uh piece of shit who's like basically ruined the life of everyone who's come in contact with them yeah, I mean, I appreciate the po- that point about, oh, it puts a human face on something where, like, oh, you could have just made it a monster and then made it so ridiculous that people won't actually take stock and look at their own lives and, and look at, you know, the way things are in reality, which is often unpleasant and terrible and bad. Um, I suppose... I suppose this is complicated in a way that's difficult to talk about because it's... Uh, <laughs> In the Witcher universe and in this universe, people aren't always taught to actually 
treat each other well. <laughs> like, it's not like we actually have, uh, it's not like you actually learn that in school. Maybe you should, but hey, hey how not to uh, become an abusive monster? It, it feels like that's implied in everything that we talk about when we're in school, but it's not actually something that's, uh, there are lessons on and people get a lot of sort of uh, mixed uh, mixed messages about how to treat someone and how to treat a spouse, how what how to perform masculinity, the whole the sort of whole barrage of shit that kind of goes along with this. And of course, Witcher is in this fantasy universe in this very like, oh yeah, you know, you gotta kick people's asses kind of universe. That's most of your tools to solve problems involve kicking somebody's ass, right? That's that's yeah. most of what happens. Obviously there are conversation options and this does it that much better than most other games, but I do appreciate that there's a lot of complexity there, but I, I am also, <sighs> I get why Corey uh, would be mad. <laughs> no, I, I get why people would be mad, you know, about uh, any kind of any sympathy for the devil, so to speak. Uh, even even coming from a person who like really does try to be very, very empathetic towards all kinds of shit, it, it, is, it is a very hard position to, uh, to take with the appropriate amount of nuance, right? Well, I, I think the the one other thing I, I'd say too is that the Bloody Baron quest, I think, is to an extent about a character trying to find his way back from yeah. that that extreme. And I guess the other thing I'd say is that a lot of media, again treat issues like this a bit like they treat ra racism right where if like oh right. once you do the thing that lets lets the racist label be appended to you then it's very simple and you know you know what i mean this is why so many people can be racist but not actually think they're racist because they think right. it's like this line you cross and it's like black and delineated. white it, yeah literally yeah like yeah and i think this is sort of about a character who just sort of like finds himself you know at the most extreme nightmarish end and then what do you do from there? Like, how, do, how does someone like that, can a person like that even reform or, or redeem themselves? And, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, certainly there's, there's stories in my family about people, you know, fi like finding their way back from, from those extremes. There's also stories in my family about people not. Uh, right. But it's, I, I, like the, I, I like the way it ends up it ends up telling that story. The other thing I'll say is that fundamentally, The Witcher Three is a, a pretty medieval ass story. Um, For like, sure, the Baron yeah. was prioritizing work over family. It's like he was like going, you spending too much time at the office. He was a mercenary soldier uh, in the middle of a war. <laughs> yeah. That like, I don't know. It's just, it's it's a funny way to describe uh, where the Baron sits in in this world uh, of the witcher three where like the first tree you see has like 20 bodies hanging off of it <laughs> yeah that's a pretty good point too this is a world of extremes uh so yeah dude wasn't dude wasn't having an affair with the secretary it was a little, <laughs> a little exactly. different you know <laughs> it's not an Don draper like living up in the <laughs> yeah. city and then coming back and being a shitty husband for sure. For sure. So any uh, games that totally changed for you when you go revisit? I mean, there's there's a lot of movies. Like, we talked about this once upon a time, for sure. Actually, not yeah. even that long ago. But, like, that scene in Blade Runner, that is totally a fucking rape scene. Uh, you know, when I was, like, 17 and watching that movie, I was more like, wow, you know, oh, man, Harrison Ford's so hot. 
And he's, you know, he's just like, no, he's just being like, you know, he's just showing her that, that she likes uh, sexy times. Like, that's that's what's happening. And like, now I watch that and I'm like, bro, uh, no, no means no, dude. Like, you know, it's like a very, I have like a much more, a much different reaction to it. And like, there's a lot of like favorite movies and, and sort of favorite TV shows. There, there's even things in my, in my, my beloved Farscape, my truly beloved Farscape. Like, if you go back and watch The Flax, there's a whole... That's the episode where uh, John and Aaron almost get it on for the first time, and they're caught in this thing, and they think they're about to die, and this whole thing happens. And there's a, a, a person there who is the female of the species, but presents sort of uh, as, as a, a masculine person. Uh, everybody uses, like, he pronouns, and then at the end it's like, no, you know, Dargo, I'm, I'm the female of the species. And Dargo kind of has, like, a gay panic moment, and it's like... Actually, that's kind of gross, guys. Like, I know it's it's the 90s, and I know maybe uh, things were a little different at the time, but Farscape was so progressive on most things with sexuality that, like, that kind of stings to kind of go back and watch that. So there's there's a lot. It's especially to do with a lot of things about, you know, sex or sexuality or gender, or that kind of thing. There's a, there's a lot that's like, I love you show or movie or whatever, but, hmm. That would that wouldn't I don't want that to fly, even then. Like I don't think it would fly today, and I and I kind of don't think it even flew at the time. It just wasn't necessarily something we're all aware of. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, God, for me, the West Wing is kind of Exhibit A. Um, <laughs> yeah, just for of sure. Like, <laughs> first time through, like. Oh man, the the banter between Josh and Donna is is so funny and charming, and I'm like. What an asshole. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Shut up, dude. Like, stop, like, you know, it's just this terribly yeah. dysfunctional relationship. Uh, the, the show is like, no, trust us. It's, it's cute. Will, will they or won't they? And like coming to it now, it's, it's, it's actually kind of like, well, I hope they, I, I hope they don't. I hope they wouldn't. Yeah. I hope she slaps him. Like, yeah. just, ugh. Well, I remember yeah. that even at the time, like after the second season, that relationship does get increasingly problematic to the point where like, there are even other relationships that are shown to be far more healthy in that show. So it's kind of yeah. like, why are you pushing this one? This is this is what this one's clearly screwed. Uh, <laughs> but you know, even setting that stuff aside, there's also just the um, well, there's this great piece like a month or so ago about how dangerous the hold on the liberal imagination uh, that yes. the West Wing enjoyed actually turned out to be. Yeah, and I think that's that's the other aspect of the West Wing that is really tough to watch now. Is it's this sort of um, this daydream that purported that presented itself as being like a realistic look at how Washington worked, but it's this yeah. daydream of you know two principled sides, uh, you know, doing battle over the issues, and they just you know they, they they disagree on on the right thing to do, but everyone wants to do the right thing, um, and. No, and that is so not the case. Yeah, it really isn't. Like, there's there's even a point where Donna's like dating this Republican lawyer from from Capitol Hill, and you know she asks him, "Why are you Republican?" And he sort of jokes about like, "I just hate the poor." Uh, you know, they're so jobless and poor. <laughs> and, and yeah. He's joking. He's making a mockery of like her, you know, liberal, you know, pre sentiments about, um, you know, about how she thinks Republicans are. <laughs> Except then, like, you know. 
you you flash forward you, you look at what that party was doing in that decade and then what they what they've done since and it's like no the show just let them off the hook because it was easier not to have that fight it was easier to pretend that we were all playing by the same rules and we all shared these like basic values when it turns out that republican lawyer probably did fucking hate the poor it doesn't matter yeah. how hard he hit the gym or how nice he was or how 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 good he looked in a suit at the end of the day, the guy probably the the real world version of that dude was Paul Ryan talking about, you know, this is what we were dreaming of when we were doing keg stands. That's who that yep. dude is. That's who that party was. And the West Wing is like willfully blind to it. Uh, and in the intervening years, it's just gotten more painful. Yeah, it's <sighs> it hurts so much to go back and think about. It hurts so much to go back and think about things, closely held truths like that, that felt so, oh, so, so ironclad and so, and so good and so powerful and, oh, Jesus, we live in the dumbest reality, Rob. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Uh, next email. Uh, little lighter. Uh, <laughs> yes. Hey, R&D. <laughs> in desert golf, or is it desert golfing? I thought it was desert uh, golf. Yeah. Well, Ke- Kevin know. here is calling it desert golfing, so I'll say desert golfing. In desert golfing, the player is only given three numbers in the whole game that signify your progress. When you have only three numbers to measure your progress, they feel precious. I felt a burst of excitement at hole 100 because, wow, 100, 100%, perfect. It makes me <laughs> uncomfortable because I'm really getting excited over a number that I've been conditioned to love by our base 10 county system and 13 years of public schooling. (laughs) In games, do you ever feel driven to reach a particular number? Is level 9 more satisfying than level 10? Do 200 coins feel better than 155? All the love in the universe. Kevin. Secretly, absolutely yes. I like odd numbers so much more than even numbers. It's not even funny. I like... I have been, like, dreading turning 34, which will happen in, like, I have a while. I have, like, 10 months. Nine months? Oh, God. Eight months, I think. Whatever it is. I don't Because I think it's, like, the dorkiest number ever. I don't know why. Oh, I know why. It's because Data, the android, is 34 in uh, the first Next Generation movie, Star Trek Generations. And I always just sort of associated with him. Like, Data equals 34. So... Yeah, I do a lot of weird, <laughs> a lot of weird <laughs> associations with numbers. Maybe it also has to do with being like, uh, you know, your number if you're if you're an athlete, like in team sports. I was number six on the lacrosse team in college, so that number has some special meaning to me. Even though I kind of hated number six before then, I started to like it because I was number six. It's weird, dude. I don't know. And if I run races, like. If I had a really good race, I keep that number and I like put it somewhere like the the physical actual like paper number. Not all places do that anymore. Now it's more chips, but sometimes you still get a number and like, yeah, I did really good on that one. So I like keep that number and I'm happy about it. I This is probably super weird, but I'm glad to know that there's someone else in this world that does this too. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, I uh, for me, it's actually ratios that I tend to get obsessed oh. with like. Uh, this happens a lot in games where you sort of build your own army and stuff like that. Like, uh, you know, if I'm playing Stellaris, I basically want, um, let's see, I, you know, I basically want there to be like two cruisers for every battleship. (laughs) And then I want three destroyers for every two cruisers. 
Nice. And I just I like having things operate that when I, when I'm playing um, when I'm playing Hearts of Iron, I think your maximum army size is like twenty uh, with most with most army commanders. Uh, I generally like to run an army that's about like you know twelve or fifteen, and I like to have a one third tanks to infantry division ratio in those in those armies. I don't know why, it just feels good. Uh, and once I found those ratios, I tend to fight to preserve them. Um, so yeah, that's that's my weird quirk. Is it's not specifically like numbers, but like more geometric relationships, <laughs> ratios. Uh, yeah, beautiful numbers. golden triangles yeah. and all that kind of <laughs> golden ratios. It's uh, yes, yeah. That's, that's I get that. You want your numbers to be pretty sometimes. The way they, they form, the way the shapes they make looks. It's, it's important to have pretty numbers. Speaking of pretty numbers, sort of, I guess. Uh, our next uh, letter comes from James, who writes, Dear R&D, learning that on anonymous surveys, only 5% or less or fewer, sorry, editorializing, uh, people identify as LGBT plus gave me pause. Diverse representation and role models seem critical to me, but given these real-world numbers, realistic representation is only 1 in 20. Seems like either we don't reflect reality or minorities get less varied characters. Realistically, I think media tends to underrepresent minorities compared to even their low population percentages, but I wonder what you guys think about the ways this affects media and maybe what creators can and should do in the face of these problems. Thanks, James. 5% seems really low for yeah. the LG portion of that at least. Like that number just doesn't sound like that that's what, that's the first thing I say. Just 5% seems a little bit low for an inclusive definition like that. Yeah, I I have heard anything between 3% and 10% at various points in my life. I would be willing to bet honest honest to god that like if we if we ever lived in a truly open society like truly like fully like we get rid of all the the <laughs> this is a blue sky thing okay but like we get rid of homophobia and all the sort of notions of homophobia and ickiness and all of the stuff that kind of goes into it those numbers would be a lot higher <laughs> i think a lot of the b's might be l's and g's if uh, if we lived in a full fully inclusive society and there would be a giant fuckload more bees let's just put it that way um so that that's just my personal feeling on the matter <laughs> uh but hey let's talk about a game we were just talking about i think prey does a fucking phenomenal job with this in that yeah there's it's not like the majority of people on the space station are space lesbians like it's a it's a relatively small number but they're actually really well developed as people danielle show one of the coolest space lesbians ever, is an amazing engineer. She's also a really good singer. There's a whole thing you can go do and see her, like, performing uh, music, basically. She also is really into science fiction. She likes D&D. Like, there's all these things about her as a person that make her developed as a character. And it's not just like, well, this stamp, we have a space lesbian here. You know, that sort of thing. So, this is the thing everybody says, but, you know, you write good characters that happen to have traits, and that's how you get good representation. You know, it's people who happen to be ten different things, and maybe one of them is their sexuality. And that's awesome and deserves representation. I will also say, I was taught in film school 
very bad. This was a bad thing, I think. But in screenwriting classes that like, oh, no, once you assign a trait to someone, that's what they are, because then they'll represent everything about that. And that assumes this like really shitty default, right? That the default human is a particular way, which is complete horseshit, because there is no default human being. There is no such thing. It's a political choice to think any type of person is a default, right? Like that's right. Total horseshit. That's a wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is a wrong thing and a bad thing. And I do think, at least in, in some corners of, of media, we're starting to get away from some of that and actually seeing characters who just happen to be a whole bunch of things. That's great because that's the way the world actually works on some level. People are a whole bunch of shit. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that that's my general feeling on that. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's a... I don't know. For, for me, there there is a slippery slope angle to this, uh, which is that like the amount of media that caters to specific populations should somehow be proportional. And that's not what James is saying, right? But like right. taking numbers like that and, and and running in a direction like this can lead to a place, you know, where you're basically justifying, uh, you know, sort of. You know the 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 standard heteronormativity uh, that, that we already yeah. that we already sort of swim in uh, along the lines of well proportionally uh, you know if anything uh, you know queer identities are overrepresented in in media and so I'm not I'm not totally comfortable with with that aspect of it but but the other thing I try to remember is like uh. If I'm, you know, I like so, someone of my of my background and beliefs and ethnic makeup and and whatever, might only be a small percentage of of the overall population, or it might be a large one. I don't know, but it is one hundred percent of my experience. Exactly, uh, and, yes. and so I think that's that's the other part of this is, I think representation is not about providing equivalent services in the correct proportions to different segments of the population it is achieving a media landscape where nobody feels excluded or erased or othered and i think once we've achieved that a lot of the hand wringing we tend to do day to day goes away but it's in this yeah. it's in this process of trying to achieve this better representation uh that you know, we're sort of pushed into, you know, uncomfortable directions and uncomfortable conversations uh, for, you know, for a lot of people who, who uh, you know, aren't uh, from, from, from uh, a marginalized population. So I, I think, you know, ultimately, it's, it's less about proportionality or like, or representative sampling, as it is about achieving that end, uh, where, Everyone feels like they have a seat at the table. Uh, yes. And once once you achieve that, the exact numbers will matter a hell of a lot less. Yes. That is, I just want to echo again your point about the things that you experience are 100% of your experience. And being true to that is, I think, the most, I think one of the most important guiding principles, for sure. Like for a creator, for somebody who's making media, to be absolutely true to what you're making. That's, and true to a person's actual experience and not just like an imagined construct, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, right on. All right, last letter. All right. Hey R&D, 
I'm writing in regards to a previous conversation concerning entertaining media with objectionable content and how to reconcile one's own enjoyment of the product and the ethics that product represents. Not to retread old ground, but something funny struck me listening to this, this episode, and I'd like to share this viewpoint. Will from Chicago used the example of the elite soldiers in Ghost Recon Wildlands taking a callous and insensitive approach towards endemic rape by tossing aside a bloody condom and congratulating themselves for nicking a sports car. My argument is, I don't really see an insensitive depiction of rape in this scenario. I feel like Will can take comfort in the knowledge that Ubisoft's approach is not insensitive or tone-deaf, but rather, if anything, a more truthful and honest and accurate portrayal of how hardened elite soldiers in War Torn Bolivia would behave, probably using apathy or Ura nationalism or even levity as a coping mechanism for dealing with these horrific acts on, uh, on the daily as part of their job. Danielle gave a great example earlier in the same podcast when she mentioned how EMS often use, utilizes gallows humor and laugh, laughing as a coping mechanism when dealing with dead bodies on the regular. I don't see much of a difference between the two. I don't feel like the EMS cracking wise about dead bodies is insensitive towards death. I don't see how soldiers taking a callous approach towards the horrors of war all around them is insensitive. Uh, Ghost Recon, from Will's example, does not strike me as an unethical, insensitive game for including these scenes. Am I crazy or wrong to think this? Anyway, those are just my two cents. Thanks for reading. Alex from Minnesota. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, go for it. I think, uh, I don't think you're crazy to think this, but I, I think you <laughs> need to, uh, but I do disagree. And I think there's a couple things to remember here. Uh, one is Ghost Recon Wildlands is not a documentary. And and, and I mean, right. that's obvious, but, but, but what I mean specifically is that nothing just happens in that world that wasn't put there by hand. Like, yeah. every single thing that happens in Ghost Recon Wildlands, every single conversation, every single observation, all of that was authored. And somebody chose to include a bloody condom and then a wisecrack about it. And what did they do with that with that inclusion? Uh they kind of nodded vaguely at like some ugliness in the real world, didn't put a human face on it, and then dismissed it as a joke. And you can argue that, you know, that's how, you know, soldiers on active duty would react to a lot of horrifying shit. <laughs> Maybe, uh, but certainly the, the, the message of a moment like that, the victim is not thought of at all. Uh, the, the backstory behind the bloody condom is not considered whatsoever. All that matters is the soldiers being sort of hardy and unaffected uh, about the entire thing. And I think that's yeah. kind of where the grossness comes from. So if, if this were a game about, like, about, about um, like, uh, emergency workers... Yeah then this sort of humor would make sense because then you couldn't really make a game that reports would be about, the, be about this stuff without addressing some of it. You, you, know, you know what I mean? Like, it, it would have to be there. To, to be a game about emergency services, services <laughs> you would have to have bad shit going down and being struck into absurd and, uh, like, awful situations. Um and then you could you could showcase that Ghost Recon Wildlands could be about a bunch of different things, um, and so it's, the inclusion of this one detail just comes across as way more questionable. I think. Yeah, I 
I completely agree with that. And that's, like, that's absolutely what it is. Like, the tone of that game, I, again, whenever I talk about this, like, this is talking about somebody who's seen some of it, but I haven't played much of it. Uh, so that's with a grain of salt. But, like, as a general point, like, if you are going to to do something that is <laughs> tackling this kind of subject matter, you have to do it thoughtfully or else you really should be dragged. <laughs> That's honestly my opinion. Like, it's okay to, to talk about this sort of stuff. It's okay to bring something like that up, but it has to be approached as something that means something and not as a, a fucking joke, like a dumb joke. Like, I, I get that soldiers have a lot of gallows humor. Like, wasn't that the whole thing behind what WikiLeaks actually put out was, was you know, the soldiers who were sort of laughing about wanton murder, like actual real life, uh, <laughs> really bad, really horrifying shit. Like, I, I get it. I get what you're trying to say, but like, you're going to have to do a much better job of saying it if you want to, you know, kind of address this sort of issue. You, like, I really do think games have to do their due diligence there. You can't just have a thing that you just throw out there as if it's like, no, oh, this will make a good goof. You know, like, that's throwing a victim under the bus. It's throwing people who are victims completely under under the same bus that they nicked, you know, on, in that mission. So, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is just I think if you're telling a war story and then uncritically adopting the point of view of the most desensitized uh, murderous <laughs> participants in that war, uh, then you probably also, you may also not be contributing very much of value, right? Like, yes. <laughs> like basically, if you, if you ever watched um, Generation Kill, uh, which is a, a great book and, and, and a great HBO series uh, from, I think, David Simon, uh, there is a character who gets nicknamed uh, Whopper Whopper Junior? Uh, because they were they extrapolate that that nickname back from the fact that he shoots a toddler in the middle of a gunfight. Wow! And so they start calling him Baby Killer, and that yep. turns into BK, and then Whopper Junior. And the point is, the perspective of the show is. This is incredibly fucked up. Like, yeah. like when it happens, right. the guy's initially shaken, and then it turns into sort of a regimental joke. Oh yeah, he's the kid who killed the toddler. But the perspective is that of the reporter traveling along with these dudes, and like he's he's still got this outsider perspective of like, you know, maybe this is what you need to do to survive in a war zone or not. But like, this kind of callousness is still really ugly. It's it, this is not good uh, for the spirit. But if you just make a game that's told entirely from the, from the perspective of a dude who kills a baby and then enthusiastically adopts like the moniker Whopper Whopper Junior, like <laughs> then you might have made a shitty toxic game. You know, you might have made a toxic toxic TV show. Uh, so, yeah. th so that's the other thing uh, is that you know those arguments from a place of authenticity can be can be really shaky because you know who's that experience authentic to? You know what I mean? Like, what? It, it's still an edited perspective, so you 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 need to consider that. Yeah, I think that's very well said, and a very good pivot point uh, to move into our weekend project. You got to so, lead off. You got to lead off. I'm gonna lead off. Okay, Rob, I have been watching something that I don't I don't even care 
necessarily 100% about the content of it. I do, I do, and I like it, but like, I missed the first episode, I walked right into the second episode, and I was so transfixed by the cinematography and production design and lighting and all the really pretty things that it could have been about, like, I don't, I don't know, a dude eating a burger. I guess I, I've got Whopper Jr. on my mind now, but, like, it could have been about anything, but it is the most beautiful thing, and I love it. And that is American Gods. Mm-hmm. Rob, oh my god, oh my god. So it's, it's a show about real-life gods. Sure, okay. And, like, some of them are new, like, media and technology, and some of them are really old, like, gods you've heard about back, back in the day that were worshipped a long time ago. But really... Oh god, it's so beautiful. It's it's Brian Fuller, who he, you might know from uh, Hannibal, the one of the best TV shows that's not called Farscape or The Americans uh, on TV. I don't, I I know I probably didn't gush as much about Hannibal as maybe the amount of sort of brain space it took up in my head was, but that was because I was literally moving when I started getting obsessed with that show and I like marathoned it in like the two weeks that were my first two weeks in New York. <laughs> so that's all sort of tied up for me, but Oh god, it is it is so beautiful. And I do care about the content. It is saying some interesting things about faith and about like what worship is and what like the place of of deities might be in our world and and in previous iterations of our world. And I really like that stuff. I think it's actually of value, but it it is so beautiful that like my mind is enjoying it on a purely aesthetic level as well as sort of the content itself and that doesn't happen for me that often anymore like there there are times i'm like that's beautiful but it's so stupid or that's beautiful but ugh, it's saying something that i think is really ugly i am just in love with the way that this show looks right now and i, I will report back when i've seen more of it I've, I've watched the second and third episodes at this point and there is a scene in the most recent episode that i think is one of the most beautiful things uh it's sort of a i won't go into any kind of detail, but it's a, a, a love scene that you don't see often between types of people that you don't see often together. And it is so fucking gorgeous. And I loved it so much. So there will be a, a further American Gods report. Don't worry. But right now, that's definitely what I'm doing this weekend. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been eager to watch that one. It's getting, it's getting DVR back in my place in Boston, but I forgot to set my DVR <laughs> here. Uh, so we oh, okay. Will... Uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. Uh, hopefully, yeah. hopefully those episodes will still be recorded for me when I when I get back. <laughs> um, okay, so as you know, I was on a lot of planes this weekend. Yes, you were. I watched a lot of movies. <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of movies, and I'm gonna give my endorsement more. Hey, y'all, check out this movie so I can figure out what I think of it. <laughs> uh, Steven Soderbergh's Side Effects. Oh, interesting. It is a psychological thriller about uh, mental illness, depression, anxiety, and medication. Okay. And at first, in true Soderberghian fashion, it plays out almost just like a documentary. Um, yeah. Uh, what is it? Uh, Rooney Mara? Is that the yes. name? Uh, Rooney yes. Mara is a uh, woman whose stockbroker husband has just been released from prison after doing a, a sentence for insider trading. And Perfect. 
he comes back and they're trying to get their life back on track but her crippling anxiety comes back and in the first few minutes she attempts to kill herself she hops in a car and drives at full tilt into a wall um straight on and she is brought into the er and uh dr jude law is there and he immediately figures out it's a suicide attempt and becomes her, um, you know, attending physician and her uh, her therapist. Mm-hmm. And nothing is working to deal with this the, the, these crippling issues. Um, and she is put on this experimental medication, and the entire movie just is sort of set up as this cautionary tale about big pharma. And uh, how they want to give you the pills that may not be good for you and might cause some some really bad shit to happen. Uh, yeah. But th- your doctor doesn't care because he's taking money from Big Pharma. Uh, and, they're, <laughs> you know, he's in his high-rise office and, uh, you know, you'll just have to deal with the fallout from all this. That's where it seems to be going. And okay. then the side effects from this drug get real disturbing and some real bad shit happens. And the movie turns. It takes a left turn and becomes a completely different movie than the one you think you were watching. Wow. And it's at, that part is it's kind of interesting. Like you like you genuinely like is this just because the doctor is starting to lose his mind? Like is he just in complete denial of what happened and he's justifying shit or has he stumbled upon a terrifying conspiracy? Who knows? But the thing that also sticks with me is the horror of the movie is to an extent also the horror of mental illness. And so there is this weird, um, what's, what's the right way to put there? There's a word I'm groping for and I'm not going to find it. Uh, it's been on the tip of my tongue for the last like 10 minutes. I just, I just can't get there. But basically it's taking the struggles and um, challenges that a lot of people who deal with uh, uh, with anxiety and depression face, and turns them into catalysts for like a horror movie plot almost. Oh, I yes, okay, I know where you're going. Yeah, and that's the thing is like it's an effective movie. It it kind of worked for me, but at the same time, even as I'm sitting there watching it, I'm like. So basically, this is terrifying because this chick's like really badly mentally ill, possibly. Like, yeah. And that's when it gets really uncomfortable. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, I absolutely do. Uh, <laughs> this is the sort of thing that does for real hit me where I live, uh, so to speak. So yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. So like, <laughs> it's it's an interesting movie. And I'm glad I saw it, but I've also come to the, come out the, you know, finished with the movie. I've come out the back end and I'm like, I don't know how I feel about where that suspense <laughs> and psychological horror was rooted. Like that feels like it might've been anchored in a really poisonous place when it comes to like mental health and mental well-being. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know how I feel, and I certainly don't recommend it to people who might be triggered by things like, uh, you know, terrible crippling anxiety attacks, you know, in a movie. Yeah. Uh, but if it sounds like something you'd be interested in, 
I'd be really curious to know what the hell you make of it. Because uh, it was a movie I mostly enjoyed, but also felt kind of icky, uh, you know, after after watching. God, that's really, yeah. I'm really curious now to actually watch it and see. All right, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, add, that, I'll add that to the weekend project. Danielle, it turns. <laughs> it, it's set. Twice. Because, like, I have a fascination with movies that do that and it shows any any media that does that it's like you know what you're getting into all right okay here's what we're doing oh my god no that's not no. what we're getting this into. thing is like barry sanders hitting the hole like he like this movie cuts <gasps> left and then cuts right so hard holy shit uh, it's like and, it, and that's what's cool about it it's effective but at the, yeah. at the end man like yeah then you need to watch it daniel i'm sorry you need to watch it and tell okay. me tell okay. me how i need to feel it's a it's a project. We're adding it. We're adding it to the list of weekend projects. That's it's official, official time, <laughs> official time. And I guess with that, it's time for me because I got so much to do now. I've got to I've got to go watch this. I got to play more prey. I got I got a lot of things I got to do here. So I think with that, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at IdleWeekend.net. And send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. We really do appreciate it. If you, uh, if you would spread the word, if you enjoyed this uh, lovely podcast or whatever podcast, if you would go tell friends, tell your pets, tell your weird uncle, tell your cool aunt, tell whoever you think might enjoy it, because it helps us out so, so much. And also, if you would take a second and rate us on iTunes, we would also really appreciate that. It means the world to us that you listen to us talking about things we love, things we don't love, and, uh, you know, problematic media. <laughs> so thank you again. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. <laughs>